0: welcome to theory neutral the podcast about stuff languages do i'm aiden and i'm logan
1: jacob is unfortunately out today so you've just got the two of us
0: and today we're talking about how much grammar it takes to sail a boat based on the paper how much grammar does it take to sail a boat by david gill So, the fundamental question behind this paper is, why is language complicated? Because when you start looking at what languages do, as we have been doing, they do a lot of complicated stuff. Many people have assumed that linguistic complexity is related to cultural complexity, and we might be tempted to just dismiss that out of hand after observing that that point of view is actually super racist and has been used to justify colonialism and language destruction when used to compare different human cultures. But right in the first paragraph, Gill points out that even if we assume that all human languages and cultures are equally complex, it is still pretty obvious that human languages are more complex than, for example, chimpanzee communication. So, do we need all the complexity of human language to support human culture is actually a reasonable, not necessarily racist question. And Gill is going to science the heck out of it by seeing if he can disprove the hypothesis that complex language is actually required for complex culture. Now, in order to do that... He proposes a new theoretical framework for an extremely basic system of communication underlying all human language. So if this is explicitly a theory paper, why the heck are we discussing it on a podcast called Theory Neutral? There are two reasons for that. First, Gill's proposal provides an alternative basis which allows us the option of discarding other theoretical constructs, which you otherwise may not have realized were theoretical constructs, if we want to. Yeah, and
1: I think that points to something about the name of this podcast and the concept of theory neutrality that we've talked a little bit about, but is worth drawing out a little bit more clearly in that in linguistics, really theory neutral just means like, we are subscribing to theories that basically everybody agrees on and doesn't have a significant problem with, rather than we are not subscribing to any theory at all. Which, I think this is a thing in general, generally in science, like, you have some sort of theory that, like, everybody accepts because it works dang well and there's no reason to question it and it's worked for hundreds of years. Technically, it's still a theory. Linguistics is in a place where those sorts of things are... A little bit more obvious than in say hard sciences because we have had less history to allow those theories to become basically accepted fact even though technically they're theory but they are still theories it's just there's a there's a useful distinction to be made and kind of what we're trying to make as a distinction by the name of the podcast is it between theories that Everyone mostly accepts even if like there are some people that question it and there are some, you know Reasons that they might be questionable. They're useful for doing basic linguistics work and nobody's gonna give you flack about using them versus things that are like This is a specific theory that we've specifically come up with that has makes a bunch of specific predictions Is part of a specific research program, etc. that are a lot less neutral which, I guess you could take the name of the podcast in kind of more than one way, because it's, on the one hand, it's neutral with regard to theory. On the other hand, it is theories that are regarded as neutral. So either way you take it, it it, it sort of works out that it's not technically not theories, but we're doing our best to just use the ones that are well accepted and considered basically fundamental to linguistics work.
0: It's also important to note that theory doesn't mean not true. There are plenty of theories, as we've just said, that are generally accepted and super useful. And we're not going to discard them because we don't have anything better. But there is a distinction still between the theory and the data. And we we want to Make sure that we're looking at the data and picking the explanation that fits the data best, not picking the explanation that most aligns with whatever the default analysis is that's popular right now.
1: Exactly. There's a distinction to be made between we're bringing our preconceptions to the data versus we're letting the data speak speak for itself.
0: Yes. So for an example of letting the data speak for itself, specifically, Aiden, you mentioned back in episode one that the ideas of predicate phrases, referential phrases, and headedness felt super basic to language in general, and thus were a good basis for Hengeveld et al. to build their typological theory on.
1: Yes, and I still agree with that, despite this paper's... Questioning of that idea.
0: But it's useful to look at Gill's work specifically because it challenges that view. And Gill's concept of the IMA, or Isolating Monocategorial Associative Language doesn't actually have any of that. And if you weren't aware of this framework, then you wouldn't be able to then look at data and question, does the data actually support this basic analysis? Which, yeah, it probably does in most cases, but that's still a question that's worth asking. Uh, And in fact, Gill has another paper uh, specifically on the IMA model titled, Where Does Predication Come From? where he explores how those supposedly basic features of predication, referential phrases, and headedness can actually arise from simpler concepts. So moving on, another reason to talk about this particular paper, aside from what it makes us think about regarding the status of theory, is that Gill actually has data, and we want to look at the data. And if we don't agree with his conclusions for whatever reason, we can still look at the objective language data and see what it is doing and try to come up with our own explanation if we want.
1: Exactly, and that is what enables me to disagree with this paper. Is like, oh, I think I know what else is going on here because I'm looking at the data and having questions about it.
0: Right. So, what is this IMA language thing that Gil is talking about? Well, first, it's isolating, meaning that there are identifiable units, which we're gonna call words, which are invariant. They don't change in any way depending on the context in which they are spoken. Second, it's monocategorial, meaning that there are no restrictions on how words can be strung together that you could use to group them into types. All the words are just words. And it's worth pointing out here that this is distinct from Hangeveld's idea of contentives. In the typology that we discussed back in episode one, it's just still assumed that there is a distinction between function words that do syntactic stuff and content words. And in this IMA model, even that basic distinction is gone. There's just words. All words are on the same level. And then third, it's associational, meaning that the compound meaning of a string of words is something that's associated with the meanings of all of the components. So for an example of how this works, Gil gives the sentence, I am makan from Rio Indonesian. If you have heard that example sentence before, yes, this is the paper it comes from. If you haven't heard that (laughs) example sentence before, this is still the paper it comes from. (laughs) (laughs) um so this sentence has two content words with no affixes or mutation or anything so it's isolating
1: it's it's worth mentioning the words are chicken and eat
0: yes yeah So that's the gloss. It can be seen as monocategorial because each word can be said as a complete utterance on its own, at least according to Gill. I do not have independent knowledge of Riau Indonesian to to support this, but he claims either of those words on its own is a complete grammatical utterance in the correct sociological context. So they belong to the same category of sentence words, and the syntax of the whole sentence is just conjunction or juxtaposition of two simpler. Sentences, And then it's associational because the meaning of this two-word sentence is something to do with chicken and eating, which can be interpreted in different pragmatic contexts as, for example, the chicken is eating, or the chickens which were eating, or the reason that chickens eat, etc. Now, it's important to note that Gill does not claim that Rio Indonesian or any other language is actually a pure IMA language. Rio Indonesian has affixes, it has compounding, it has function words, it has specialized syntactic constructions with more specific semantics than just association. And there is this persistent myth that Indonesian, in general, has no grammar, and that's just not true. And really, it still wouldn't be true even if the only grammar was was IMA grammar, but Gil has collected a large sample of sentences from Rio Indonesian and related varieties, including Jakarta Indonesian, Papuan Malay, Siak Malay, and Minangkabau, which he claims can be interpreted as chunks of pure IMA language that don't have any of that extra machinery going on.
1: So one of the nice things about the fact that guild provides data here that we can look at and have questions about and so forth is that we can also ask questions about what data he is not necessarily including and not necessarily aware of. Specifically, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but one of my soapboxes, along with Tone, is that a lot of linguistics does not properly recognize the importance of information structure to how language functions. Information structure, you may not have even heard of what this is, which is a terrible failure on the part of linguistics pedagogy, but information structure is the concept of how language is grammatical handle what is new information and what is old information that the new information is being provided about. The primary distinction is between topic and focus, where topic is old information, and focus is the new or at-issue information that is connected to the topic somehow. We often don't think about these things in Indo-European languages because they're usually, like, topicality is, in a lot of cases, handled just by, like, Implication from the fact that the topic is also the subject and is also definite, and set constructions that get at other sorts of ways of doing things like left dislocation in English have often historically been dismissed as just colloquial language and nobody's paid attention to them. The end result is that a lot of linguistics doesn't really take into account information structure things. And I think this is an example where information structure needs to be discussed even if it doesn't end up actually like sinking the whole theory, pun intended. But I think it's actually a serious problem with this because Gil is coming out here with this assertion that a sentence like I am makan has no further syntactic structure besides we have put two words together and are assuming that the resulting meaning has something to do with the combination of the two of them and i think that is a premature assumption because language every language needs a way to mark topic and mark sub and focus and in the basic case you are going to have a topic and a focus in every sentence and that simple fact suddenly means That you have much more going on in a sentence than just, there is an association between chicken and eat. It is, if chicken is your topic, and you're saying about it, eat, you've suddenly transitioned into, we've got references, we've got predication, even if those aren't exactly basic grammatical categories, they're still, like... We're implying predication by the fact that this word is a focus. We're implying reference by the fact that this word is a topic. Like, you suddenly have this incredible range of grammatical machinery that you can and kind of have to make use of that is far and above.
0: Even with only two words.
1: Even with only two words, exactly. It's things like these are presented in a particular order, which... I don't know that Gill ever mentions ordering as being relevant, but...
0: Not in this paper, at least. And if ordering is relevant to information structure, then, you know, what does it mean if eat is the topic and chicken is the focus?
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's no data at all in this paper presented on prosody, which is a very common way of marking information structure, which means that information structure is often even more ignored because it's just in the prosody and nobody ever thinks about the prosody. But if we had prosodic data, we could, you know, maybe see that there's a difference. Between, like, I am Makan versus I am Makan versus I am Makan. Those are all potentially different things. I don't know. I don't know how Indonesian works, but that's how English works. That you know, the chicken eats, the chicken eats, you know, those sorts of things, those make a difference. They make a difference for the interpretation and they could have significantly wider implications in Indonesian maybe even than they do in English because these words can be predicates or they can be references. And now you have this ability to use the prosody to mark the information structure to imply what is predicating, what is being a reference, etc. So there's this whole range of grammar that might be there that Gil isn't aware of. I did a search through his paper and the words topic, focus, and information structure, none of them appear in an information structure sense. They're all part of the meta discussion of, you know, people have focused on blah, blah, blah. At no point in this paper does Gill make it clear that he has ever heard of information structure, which I think kind of throws a loop into his, like, the third point, the idea of this associational, no further relationship specified between words in sentences than they are connected somehow. Turns out to fall completely. completely flat in the face of information structure considerations. But that doesn't mean that his wider point about complexity falls flat, and we can talk about that in a minute.
0: Yeah, I think the idea of associational semantics is a valid one. Like, if you're trying to come up with a common core for what is the basic function of syntactic combination, it's hard to do better than that. True. Whenever two words are related syntactically, the meaning of the compound phrase is going to be something related to the meaning of all of its constituents. It's just usually it's going to be more specific than that. Yeah. But if you're comparing just syntax, what is the basic meaning of syntax... The simplest it could possibly be, then that's probably a pretty good way of modeling it. Just when he claims that these example sentences are examples of that, the lack of data about prosody and information structure that all has functional implications, if we had that information, that could potentially disqualify some of these examples as actually being valid examples. Yeah. Exactly. And additionally, in my mind, a significant weakness of the data presented here is just inherent to the fact that it comes from corpus analysis rather than original directed elicitation. Because the corpus that he got his data from has just one translation for each example sentence, which is what the sentence actually meant when it was said in a particular context by the person who said it. And that makes it very difficult to prove that they actually are demonstrations of pure IMA language. If you don't have a lot of background grammatical knowledge on these different varieties of Indonesian and Malay, there's no real reason to assume that there aren't specific lexical classes with specific syntactic rules forcing that specific interpretation. So I would really like to see more data that explores what happens to the meanings of these example sentences if you switch words around. Or, what range of alternative explanations each sentence might have if you just presented them to somebody without context or in different contexts?
1: Yeah, and I think if that had been done, it might have forced the researcher doing this elicitation to recognize oh, there's some discourse level stuff going on here. There's some information structure stuff going on here. There's more than just we put two words together and they mean those two words together.
0: Yeah, and even in English, I can't do anything as impressive as the fairly lengthy examples that are in this paper. But even in English, you can put together some surprisingly long strings of words that look like they could be IMA if you didn't already know English. Mm-hmm. Like I could say water flows downhill. Okay, there's a verb inflection on there. But you know, imagine that was gone. <laughs> um <laughs> It might work better in Chinese, which doesn't have those verb inflections. But, you know, water runs downhill. That's three content words, and aside from the inflection suffix, practically no function words, but because I know English, I know that all three of those words actually do belong to different syntactic categories, and that there's only one possible interpretation and one way to parse it out because of those lexically specified categories. Yeah. But, regardless of how you feel about Gill's specific analysis of the linguistic data, it's still worth discussing the central question that he was doing this analysis to address. And while his arguments might not be as strong as I would like them to be, I think his conclusions about how language is related to social complexity are still valid. And what it basically comes down to is if you only need IMA language to sail a boat, then you can't make any conclusions about what a language does based on like archaeological material evidence. The stuff that you can recover from somebody's material culture or that you can observe them doing in social interactions doesn't actually tell you anything about what their language does.
1: Yeah, he has a quote from Edward Sapir here, which I rather like despite the somewhat dated um, ways of phrasing things he says. Both simple and complex types of language of an indefinite number of varieties may be spoken at any desired level of cultural advance. When it comes to linguistic form, Platon walks with this Macedonian swineherd, a Confucius with the headhunting savage of Assam. And obviously, as modern people, we might question his use of cultural advance and headhunting savage and so forth. But the idea is, anybody from any walk of life in the world, from investment banker to, you know... Uncontacted hunter gatherer, you cannot predict the form of the language that they are going to be speaking. It can be anything from something like Riau Indonesian, which I think you can make a case is still simpler grammatically, even if it's not all the way to there is basically no grammatical structure. The idea of like we're marking information structure by word order and implying basically everything else from information structure seems al- at least intuitive. A lot simpler than we are, you know, explicitly marking everything for what everything does and adding a bunch of extra stuff as well that you might want to know. You can have anything from this to something like Salesian languages or Mohawk, which we were talking about a couple weeks ago, where you have way more grammatical complexity and a lot more things marked and a lot more things sort of stuck into specific structures You can have any of those in any context, and they don't say anything one way or the other about the culture that the language is a part of. Even English is, in a lot of ways, simpler in terms of level of grammatical information that it forces you to keep track of than other Indo-European languages. But we're all doing the same things, and English has sort of moved to this from somewhere else. So it's just goes to show that with a few very specific exceptions, most of which have are, have to do with like interpersonal relations, linguistic structure and culture are fundamentally disconnected. They have nothing whatsoever to do with each other.
0: Yeah, at least at the grammatical level.
1: At the grammatical level. Once you get into lexical things...
0: Yeah, there's yeah. some interesting stuff about lexical structure, which we might have to discuss in another episode.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: So, Aiden, would you say that, in fact, you need information structure to sail a boat?
1: I would say, yes, you do need information structure to sail a boat. But I would caution that by saying that is my intuitive analysis of the situation, and data might prove me wrong. I have not studied it. But I strongly suspect... That you need information structure to sail a boat.
0: So if anybody who has access to Indonesian speakers is looking for a research project, go take all of Gil's example sentences and science the heck out of them. (laughs) Please, for posterity. Yes. Theory Neutral is made possible by our listeners, families, and friends. Follow us on Twitter at Theory underscore Neutral, or send us an email at theory.neutral.podcast at gmail.com. Join us next time when we will be discussing Serial Verb Constructions in Typological Perspective.